Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Napoleon Assist. It's day two of Waterloo Remembered, and today we're starting the first of a triple bill of interviews on one of the most important yet most neglected topics on Waterloo, the Forgotten Foreign Forces. I'm delighted to be joined by Haley Stewart, a historian from the University of North, North Texas, specialising in Anglo-German relations during the Napoleonic era. Haley, it's great to have you here. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm very Thanks for well. having me. And thank you for coming on the show. Tell us a little bit about your research. Um, my current research is dealing with uh, the relationship between Britain and Hanover, um, and more specifically, the diplomatic relations between um, Britain and Hanover. And so what I'm looking at are the methods that Britain employed to manage North Germany, protect their economic interest and their maritime rights in the North, and how Hanover plays into that. Um, while maintaining this balance of power, there's this kind of level that I see emerge where, yes, they're maintaining the balance of power, but they're also using imperial methods of, of overseeing uh, disjointed uh, group in the, in the kind of Holy Roman Empire and how they're playing the Prussians and the Bavarians and the Saxons and leveraging Hanover, you know, to navigate the complexity um, of, of relations going on there. And so that's what my research is looking at. And it's looking at the revolutionary and Napoleonic era because that um, period really kind of messes with things, right? It, it brings things into conflict, this effort at George III to manage Hanover and Britain separately, um, which scholarship has, has shown pretty uh, convincingly that he tries to. And then the Napoleonic Wars kind of mess all of that up, if you will. Um, and it throws those two those efforts to operate distinctly together um, because France, even Prussia, uh, uses the language where they view Hanover as a continental British possession. 
um, even though they are composite states in which they are separate states but share a same sovereign, they still view them that way. And sometimes the way that your enemy views things is just as important as how you view them, right? And it plays into your strategy. So that's a lot of what I'm looking at in my uh, current research. Fantastic. And is that going to be turned into a book? Um, yes, much more work we'll have to do. <laughs> I'll have to do for for the the book project because there's so many things that you have to leave out right in the process of kind of constructing the the dissertation what we call the dissertation um, um, and so there's more work but yes ideally that's the goal is eventually turning it into a book it sounds like a really interesting really interesting piece of research I'm looking forward to seeing the end product of it one of the most enduring yet frustrating myths in my opinion about Waterloo is that it that Waterloo was a British victory and that people like to take the involvement of the Prussians uh, under Blücher and massively downplay the vital role that they played. But then when it comes to the role of Dutch and Belgian forces and the King's German Legion, that's almost been forgotten entirely, which has always struck me as just a, a willful misremembering of the reality of the international effort that Waterloo represented. Tell us about the King's German Legion, first of all. Who were they? Um, the, I agree with you about this, this myth that you find so interesting, and I think it's kind of a product of coalition warfare um, and a difference between the military and political aspects, right? The framing of conflict afterward or, or how we remember it. Um, and I think in this coalition warfare, that tends to happen. Right, you're not thinking of the composition of the armies or what is being made up of them. And this really is too um, not unusual for the British way of war on the continent, right? To have this coalition warfare to subsidize German troops. So it's almost as it's normal, right? To constitute it as a British victory, even if it is made up of these foreign troops. And so the King's German Legion, as you said, is part of this. And the King's German Legion emerges as a result of the French invasion of Hanover in 1803 and the, the restarting of conflict on the continent. And it's kind of an interesting evolution that happens over a period of several months. Um, you have uh, uh, General Mortier march into Hanover. Um, the first um, capitulation that the Hanoverians sign, um, they, uh, Georgia III refuses to, to agree to it. There's then a second capitulation because they're trying to, Hawkesbury is the foreign minister, um, and then you have the German uh, advisor, Lintha, and they're trying to organize a way to get some of the Hanoverian troops off the continent into England because this changes dynamics for uh, British recruitment right, of troops, uh, because you have Prussia um, in their situation, you now have France controlling a large portion of the territory, so recruiting troops would be a problematic event for England, so they're trying to organize this. They're not able to effectively organize it, the operation um, the way they want to, um, but they end up, because there are English vessels off the coast of Germany, um, going to get possessions of George's the thirds that are in Hanover because of this invasion. And they kind of organize and offer these Hanoverian troops um, the option to come to England, right? So over the few months after the invasion of Hanover, you have um, uh, Frederick von der Decken, who's a Hanoverian troop who's very much back and forth. He's close to uh, Prince Adolphus, 
the Duke of Cambridge, and he's um, part of this organizing of these troops. Um, and at first, it's just infantry, and they're referred to as the King's German Regiment. And then they have so many, they're able to um, recruit so many troops in this that they've been able to form cavalry units and artillery units. And then in December of 1803, they are officially established as the King's German Legion. And what's so interesting about them is they are under the British Army. You know, they are part of the British Army. And for military personnel, it was almost kind of, of course, you know, this is an easy way of, of moving them in. The political side is less convincing. Of course, parliament and opposition politics and the component of Hanover um, involved in that. But they eventually also recognize the value of the King's German Legion and they, you know, agree to make them part of the British Army. They just can't command troops, um, you know, in the British Isles. Um, so there are some distinctions that play into the fears, right, that, that exists there. Um, so it's really an interesting group, and it is largely um, made up of Hanoverians, especially in the early years. They first see combat in 1805, and so those early years is predominantly Hanoverian. Um, but then, of course, it's mostly German because, you know, from all the various places within the Holy Roman Empire, but there's also Dutch and Swiss and other groups that are also part of this King's German Legion. And so I would say toward the end of the Napoleonic Wars, you probably have fewer Hanoverians than in the earlier part, but it is largely made up of Germans nonetheless for the whole time. So it is really a very interesting, uh, I guess kind of collaboration and kind of an interesting social case study too, right, of these Anglo-German troops and the, the languages and the structure and all of that, kind of the English and the German collaboration, hybrid, if you will. Absolutely, and they, they gain quite a formidable reputation, particularly when they served under Wellington um, during the Peninsula War. I mean, troops from Germany have a, a long history of being quite highly respected by British forces, it's worth saying. Um, mm -hmm. But it, within Wellington's army, they really are regarded as utterly dependable. Um, I, I personally quite often come across admiring comments about them in, by British soldiers at a time when there was a degree of xenophobia, particularly when you look at attitudes towards Spanish troops and perhaps to a less extent towards Portuguese troops. But at the same time, the, that quality had sort of been watered down um, over mm -hmm. the, the course of the Napoleonic Wars, hadn't it? it? By virtue of having to recruit from further afield, not just from Hanover, but from a wide variety of German states, and in some, taking, mm -hmm. in some cases taking deserters. So as a core, what's your sense of the KGL, its reputation and its real status at the time of Waterloo. There's been some, there's been really good work done on the King's German Legion and Mark Wishon has, it's not just the King's German Legion, but he has a book on German forces in the British Army. And one of his case studies is on the King's German Legion. And he does a really good assessment of, of what you're talking about, this um, respectability, right, of the King's German Legion. And he makes a fantastic point that it starts with the cavalry, right, the hussars. It starts with the cavalry and the way they're kind of eulogized and they're talked about because of their effectiveness. And that respect for the cavalry then kind of bleeds into the other 
components, right? Like it, it, it impacts the view of the King's German Legion, which it makes sense because Hanover and horses, um, <laughs> they, they horse, horses, cavalry are a big part of, of military um, kind of mentality. So it makes sense. But then that kind of um, respectability for the cavalry, of course, then um, shifts into respectability for the infantry and artillery. And in some of what you're talking about, um, I've read some of those, the way they, they speak of them. And it gets really into, you see the, the um, British troops comment on this, what we call martial, a martial race, right? When they're fighting with these German troops and these Hanoverian troops, and they very much see them. Um, and it's not that they're, they just, they just happen to be good soldiers. Um, for them, it's that it's linked to them being German, right? This kind of martial tendency that they have. And the British troops really recognize that. And I think that also lends to the difference in military culture, right? Um, Britain, I mean, we're sitting here talking about Waterloo and Wellington and the British army and these coalition forces and this great battle this incredibly important battle, but for Britain, it's still the Navy, you know? So yeah. the army culture is very different for them than the, the continental, you know, army culture. And I think they recognize some of that. And I also think it's different. Um, the military, I don't know, let me use this word, but the military public sphere, you know, the people who are actively in the military or maybe they are policymakers, they recognize the importance of, of, of German aid, um, of, of coalition forces in a completely different way. And so I think you see a lot more of, of what we're talking about here, of recognition, of effectiveness, um, because of that, right? War is hell, and they recognize the importance of having effective troops fighting alongside them in a lot of instances. Um, I also have seen mentioned that the Germans are really good at outpost duty. Um, and I think Wishon talks about this um, and that the British were, were kind of deficient in that area. So they gained respect for, for some of these things that they were good at that perhaps maybe the British were not as effective at. And that kind of shapes that. Now you see a lot more, um, I guess you say content, contentions, disagreements more at, you know, at the command level but you're, you're going to get more of that, you know, between maybe British and German um, officers. But enlisted men, it's a little bit different. And I think they're kind of shocked, if you will, a bit that they get on so well in some yeah. instances. I mean, it's interesting what you said about outpost duty. I wonder if there's just sort of a greater tendency amongst British soldiers or rank on outpost duty and, and perhaps the Germans are just a little bit better disciplined. Um, that's, that's an interesting point, actually, about discipline. It is. And I think that's part of that military culture that we're talking about. And that doesn't mean that the Germans can't have, you know, new green recruits who um, are going to, you know, uh, be shaken by, you know, first gunfire or anything like that. But they're more comfortable, if you will, culturally with an army. And, and it's kind of part of, I mean, think about Prussia and, and discipline and, and the military structure. Um, I do think it's part of military culture. Do you think culturally it's easier for the British perhaps to identify with 
the German Legion than it is to identify with the Spanish and the Portuguese, bearing in mind the religious cultural difference. Yeah, I do, because I don't think you can take, I mean, it's so persistent throughout the 18th century. Um, would you agree? This, even if, um, even if you're not particularly religious, you know, like maybe your religious convictions aren't as strong. It's, it's, it's embedded in the culture. I mean, you can't read anything without the uh, Protestant Catholic dynamics coming up in the language, right? Um, and so the whole point of establishing George I um, after Queen Anne's death was because of the Lutheran Protestant connection. There were closer people, um, but they were Catholic. So I do think that is something that is there. Also, there's the longstanding Anglo-German relationship, North German too, not just with Austria, but with Prussia. Um, and even when there's conflict, even when there's disagreement, there's still this persistent um, relationship in the sense of they're always, they're, they're gonna work together, right? This coalition, even if they disagree. Um, so there, there is a little bit different relationship than with your Spanish and Portuguese, definitely. And the kind of, I mean, think about the conflict with Spain, the historical conflict with Spain, uh, the, the connection yeah. to the, the French yeah. too, right? All is kind of wrapped up into that. So I do think some of those cultural things um, aided, if you will, in the, in the unity that the King's German Legion was able to, to develop within the British Army. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. What was the KGL's role in the Waterloo campaign? Um, the the biggest in the Waterloo campaign, like the, the most famous, you know, role of the King's German Legion is their defense of La Haison, um, where they it, it's it, Brennan Sims has the book The Longest Afternoon where he details, right, the King's German Legion um, is defense of, of this farmhouse, this farmstead. Um, and it's actually quite extraordinary. It's, it's, it's um, he would argue that it's one of the most pivotal moments of the entire battle. They're, um, they're maintaining their defense because there's several hit, you know, it's, they're gonna take several waves, if you will, of attack. Um, and they're facing this, what seems like an, an, an inevitable destruction, right? Even in their maintaining hold of this farmstead and, and they continue on. So um, this, the, the defense of the farmstead really gets going, if you will, in the afternoon on the 18th of June. Um, Napoleon had that morning um, given orders for the attack on Ugamont um, as kind of a, a diversion to kind of hold up troops. And then in the afternoon on the 18th, he starts with, because his main attack is going to be at the center, right? It's going to be a frontal assault at the center of Wellington's line, um, trying to push through this farmstead. He doesn't, when Napoleon looks out, he, he doesn't see any defenses. There's not any defenses. The King's German Legion kind of hastily um, tries to fortify some of their positions around, but Napoleon can't really see it. He's wanting to push through and then tank um, Mont Saint-Jean, right, and kind of disrupt Wellington's line of communication. So he starts with this artillery barrage 
um, of, of the, the farmstead, which isn't as effective as it could be, right? The, the cannons sink in the mud, they don't bounce for full effectiveness. There's some places that are hit, um, but he starts with that. Um, and then he's, he gives uh, um, Darlon the uh, order to, you know, start the assault on the farmstead. That's kind of the first wave and, and he leads that attack. They end up taking the orchard in the garden um, in that, that first attack. Um, and then you have the British cavalry. So that's kind of the first wave. Then you have Ney, right, come in with the second wave. Um, and there's a lot of question of what Ney was thinking, right, with this cavalry assault of the center again. Like, why did he um, lead this assault without infantry support? Um, different things like that. And I've read some things. I've read that he looks back and he thinks Wellington is retreating when really it's just something else kind of happening off in the distance. But for whatever reason, he leads this cavalry charge without infantry support um, on, on, the, on the farmstead. They hold their positions. It doesn't go well. Um, and then, you know, so it keeps going. The whole point of this defense really is that they're tying the French up. You know, they're delaying the French, they're holding the line. They're not allowing the French to break through at the moment where the French could capitalize on it, right? And while all of these assaults are happening, the Prussians are slowly trickling in, right? Um, more and more Prussians are starting to arrive. And so by the kind of end of the day, you have this last fourth assault, which is kind of the big one, and Ney is leading it again. And he succeeds. I mean, I mean, the King's German Legion at this point, you have uh, Major George Baring, who's, who's commanding this group who's at the farmstead, the uh, Second Light Battalion specifically. And then there's other groups around it. Um, and they're out of ammunition. They didn't have enough ammunition to make it through the whole afternoon to begin with. Um, some of this has to do with, like Wellington couldn't resupply ammunition because it had to do their riflemen and the ammunition was different for, for their guns than what they had. Um, they had lost their, um, some of their ammunition on the retreat earlier. Um, so they're running out of ammunition. And in this last kind of assault here, um, Ney succeeds you know, and kind of forcing um, the, the King's German leader to, to retreat. But by the time he does that, there's no one to reinforce him. You know, Ney's calling for reinforcement so he can break through the line and continue, but they're not there because by that point, the Prussians have arrived more number and Napoleon and everybody's focus, you know, is on dealing with the Prussians. So the the most vulnerable point, I guess you could say, of the King's German Legion holding the line is when Ney breaks through there in that fourth assault. But by that point, there's no support for him to actually capitalize on it or for the French to capitalize on it. And so their defense of the farmstead, um, why it's considered such a crucial moment is because of the, uh, because of the defense of holding out long enough right, for the Prussians to arrive and to completely kind of change the, the dynamics, you know, of, of the conflict. Um, and so it's, it's admirable because only 40-something of this Second Light Battalion survive. Um, you know, Baring's one of them, the famous Frederick Lindau, um, his accounts of that same battle 
um, he survives as well, but there's very few. So it was self-sacrificing in a lot of ways uh, to hold that position long enough for the other groups to, to do what they were supposed to do. It says a lot about the, not only the, the fighting spirit of the, the KGL, that when they stay until the ammunition runs out, more or less, yeah. and then they fight their way out with bayonets. It's not sort of, we're down to the yeah. last couple of rounds, let's and get the out now. Of their rifles. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then there's this disastrous assault that's ordered, well, it's, it's vetoed by the Prince of Orange, isn't there? On Tader's yes. attack to try and retake the farmhouse because the, the, um, its position in the centre barely, yes. what, 300 yards from the, the Allied lines, yes. um, became, or had the potential to become such an important firebase, um, as we're seeing later in the battle when the French put artillery in the complex, that um, Omtada's, was it a brigade that he had? I think it was a brigade, mm -hmm. wasn't it? Oh, yes. Um, um, was sent forward to try and retake the farm, and, and that went disastrously wrong. It went disastrously wrong. Um, it fails. And so he, uh, one of the things I find really interesting about this is that uh, what I've read is that Wellington, like they don't necessarily, yes, it's the center, right? It's right in front of, you know, protecting the line and all that. But it's, but before this battle, they're not necessarily organizing it, if you will, in a way that suggests it's the most important part of the line, right? Like there's no working about defense. It's almost an afterthought of how important it is. There's not really this, this preparation. So you have these 400 men, but they're over the whole hours, it's like you know, several hours that they're fighting here. There's 800 other reinforcements from different groups like you're talking about. Um, Tita bringing in, in the brigade and other reinforcements to support them in addition to the 400. This is the 400 are right smack dab in the middle. But I find it interesting, this, what we're, what we're talking about it being important defensively, but that kind of comes later. You know, like there's the, the, the prep isn't there. The preparation isn't there uh, beforehand. Um, so it almost reads, Major George Baring has his account, right, of the entire battle. And if you read his account, um, it's, it's almost like a meat grinder. <laughs> you know, they're, they're throwing men um, at these, these French assaults. And, and with um, Pita, like there's a lot of what appears as poor decision making or bad choices to charge when you're, when you're not, you know, like they're not having a lot of forethought, if you will what they're doing but I think that speaks to the intensity of the moment and to the intensity of the fighting that's happening right there um, where you get a sense of, of desperation right to drive them back in any possible way you can so within that you're, you get a lot of mistakes um, a lot of uncalculated mistakes and in the region itself right you had the slope and so they try to you know attack there and things kind of go poorly wrong when they're trying to do that um, and so the region itself and their positioning, I think, also lends to some of the, the poor decision-making on counterattacks, if you will, the effectiveness of their counterattacks. It, the accounts that we have of it are quite incredible, incredible. And we have a lot of images as well of it, um, depictions of the defense of it as well that kind of provide a visual 
of, of the fighting and the brutality of the fighting, the massive death that happens at this central position as well. We should also talk about the Brunswickers, shouldn't we? Who played uh, yeah. a pretty important role in the Battle of Catra on the 16th of June. What's the history of the Brunswick troops in the Napoleonic Wars prior to Waterloo, first of all? The Brunswick troops are incredibly interesting. And I think this, um, something that you see in the Brunswick troops is something that you're seeing in a lot of the King's German Legion troops and a lot of the German troops that are fighting under the British army, which is rid Germany of the French, right? And you really see this in the, in the Brunswick troops. So Frederick, the Duke of Brunswick is who uh, raises these Brunswickers. Um, he's the son of Charles, the Duke of Brunswick, uh, the famous Duke of Brunswick, um, who dies at Jena Auerstadt in 1806. And then Frederick, of course, becomes the Duke of Brunswick. And um, in 1809, when you have the uh, beginnings of the the fifth coalition with britain and austria um he wants to be involved in this and he works with austria to you know in his own money he uses his own money um but with support of austria to raise these brunswickers i think it's like 2300 or something like that of them at the beginning and they fight alongside austria he briefly retakes um, Brunswick Wolfenbüttel from the French in 1809, but it's only briefly, um, and then he loses it again. Um, and then he goes to England because his sister is, of course, Caroline, the Princess of Wales, who's married to George IV. And so when they go to England, then the Brunswick troops are, um, you know, he agrees to fight alongside the British and they start fighting with the British. And so some of the most famous fighting is, is in the Peninsular Campaign. Um, with these Brunswick troops. And then after um, kind of the end of that, he, he go, ends up going back about 1813 to reclaim his territory um, after they drive the French out. And so then in 1815, right, when Napoleon comes back um, and Prussia and, and Britain are you know, trying to organize this coalition, he agrees to raise troops again under the Brunswick line and fight with the coalition. Um, and so one of the things I think is really key in this 100 Days campaign and this Waterloo campaign is that these are not the same troops, right? Like, I mean, this is a different level of troop that we're dealing with than, say, in those early wars for the French, but also for the, the Prussians um, and the British. Um, a lot of them are new, and, and some of the Brunswickers, too. A lot of them are fresh recruits and not necessarily seen, you know, conflicts. So... Um, it's a different group than, say, the Brunswickers, you know, of the Peninsular Campaign that we're going to see at Quatre Bras. Um, and I think that impacts, you know, their experiences there um, and maybe the perceptions of their, of their fighting. And seeing, seeing as you've just said about, about Waterloo, at Quatre Bras, they have a pretty rough time, don't they? I mean, not least. Very losing their leader but also taking a lot of casualties they take a lot of casualties and i think that i think that lends to what we were talking about with this these different the different troops the different situation of troops even for the british right you have the war of 1812 going on so you have a number of british troops who are dealing with that conflict um you know and then you have the british troops along with their coalition members um and so it's a very different you have your seasoned soldiers of course but you also have a lot of unseasoned soldiers and so at Quatre Bras. Um, the Brunswickers are sent in um, in the afternoon um, at, to reinforce 
um, some of the other positions. And uh, Wellington gives them the orders to advance on the French. Um, and they don't have their guns. Their artillery is far away. Um, and by the time they had received the orders, they could, the, the artillery couldn't make it to where the Brunswickers were. Um, so they don't have their guns. And so when they advance on the French, the French pull out their battery um, and start waylaying the Brunswickers, right? Um, now, uh, Frederick, the Duke of Brunswick, requests ask Wellington, you know, for some guns, and they end up giving them a few. Um, but it doesn't help them as much, you know, as they had hoped. Um, they do, um, you know, advance further, um, and the French end up, um, you know, pushing them back. In the process of that, um, they're inflicting hell casualties, but in the process of that, this is where the green fresh troop thing comes in. Um, in their retreat from the French advance, they scatter, right? They um, lose confidence. They uh, kind of are, um, you know, I don't say they're starting to desert, but they're falling apart, if you will. And the Duke of Brunswick tries to reinstitute order. Um, and discipline, and he does. He's, he's able to get them um, to rally, um, but then he ends up being shot and killed in the process of that. And so after that, I mean, the Brunswickers aren't gone. Um, you know, um, after that, um, his, uh, one of his other generals, like Offerman, ends up taking over command of the Brunswickers. Um, and then you see them also fighting in Waterloo as well after that, just without their leader. Um, but some of the, the references, the, the British soldiers talking about the Brunswickers and their, I guess you could say, shoddy performance um, at Contra Brawl, I, I think it goes to some of those things that are just part of, of armies, you know? I mean, and, and, and perhaps some of it is um, perception too, right? Like what the perception of the Brunswickers were, was, what, what you know, fighting in the Peninsula Campaign and, and all of the, the things that they did. And then you have, you know, a different group, a kind of fresher recruit group who's not necessarily have, has the discipline um, to stand, you know. And so the Duke of Brunswick is having to kind of manage some of that. So I yeah. think some of that comes from that. Or, you know, some of the criticisms, if you will, comes from managing these less disciplined troops, let's say that. It's interesting what you say about the British troops because they seem to have viewed the actions of the Brunswickers quite harshly because they broke at Waterloo, uh, sorry, they broke at Catrebra, but then of course they rallied. And they did the same thing when they were attacked by Napoleon's guard at Waterloo, but again rallied. Um, which ultimately is what you need men to do in a situation, isn't it? If they are, I mean, obviously you don't want them to break, but if they are going to break, you need them to rally reform and return to the fight, which in fairness, we should say, is what the Brunswickers do at, at both battles. I can't remember if it was Wellington who said this, but there was certainly a prominent commander who said that he never blamed men for running away so long as they reformed again afterwards. I need to double check if that was actually Wellington. What's your assessment of their performance? Were the British unduly harsh? I think unduly harsh is Almost, you know, semantics. What does unduly harsh um, mean? And I think sometimes our initial responses to things are much harsher than when we sit on them. 
and think about them. And so when we're seeing, when I think about unduly harsh, I don't know it's unduly harsh. The British soldiers are, you know, responding in real time to what they see. Um, and, and so breaking, you know, is, is, is cowardice. It's not following, you know, what you're supposed to be doing. So that initial response is that we don't always, as human beings, like this is a, is a kind of a component that I always think about, don't always think about what happens in the end, right? It's our initial response that, that fills us with emotion and causes us to react, not necessarily how things end up turning out. So if, uh, since you can't remember Wellington, whatever British commander's saying, then I don't care if they break as long as they rally and go back. That's a command perspective, right? Because it's this understanding of, it, it, you can't necessarily harp on all the perfections of these things. What you need them to do is fight when you need them to fight. So British soldiers saying, unduly oh, harsh, um, yes and no. It's, it, you know, no in the sense that they're fighting with them, they're witnessing this, they're going to comment you know, on what they see as cowardice or, or not um, holding the line, right? Um, but at the same time, if we look back and step at it in a broader picture, maybe it is too harsh because ultimately in, in the end, they do what they're supposed to do, right? So I think that's just, that those are the tidbits that are so fantastic about having uh, written accounts of these battles from soldiers fighting it, is that you're getting a lot of those responses and they're very real responses. I mean, if I put myself in their shoes, I probably would have commented on the fact that the Brunswickers keep breaking. Um, so I don't think it's undo like unduly harsh in the sense that they had this comment, they have this perception, but in the whole bigger picture, the importance is, is did they rally and did they do what they were supposed to do in the end? Even if it was maybe a zigzag to get there, right? A much more complicated process than what needed to be. So, which I think those are the interesting dynamics that we're constantly wrestling with, right? As historians in general, is what do these things mean and how do they see them? And did they hold on to that? Was it a fleeting passing emotion? You know. Absolutely. I mean, the, the single most dangerous thing you can do is forget the, the human element in conflict, which is probably why we spend so much time arguing about Waterloo. I must say, if I'd been at Waterloo, I'd have probably been with the Brunswicks. I would have broken <laughs> and run, and I probably wouldn't have stopped running. <laughs> I have to ask you the, the big question. Um, and to be honest, it's probably a question that nobody's ever going to have the definitive answer to. That's not intended as an insult to you. It's, it's just such a big, such a complex Oh, no, question. It's, that's the fun in the conversation. Like, that's, yeah. Oh. Why do you think there is this tendency to downplay foreign forces at Waterloo from the British perspective? Because the fact that you have the King's German Legion at Le Haison, you've got Dutch troops alongside the British Guard at Hougoumont, says so much about Wellington's trust in them to hold their own and fight well. This is what this this is one of those questions, like you said, no one's ever gonna have a definitive answer. Everybody's gonna have an opinion. And it's also one of those questions where you always feel like you have to walk the fine line, right? Between saying something incredibly controversial um, and maintaining um balance. And I think, like you mentioned about Wellington, you know, and what this says about Wellington's trust. I think Wellington did have trust in them. This goes back to that military military sphere, the way they think about fighting their, their troops and so on. 
um, even with all the conflict and the and the disagreements and the distrust and the mistrust between say Blucher and Wellington, you still have respect there. Like it comes through in everything I've read, respect for them as each other as commanders, respect for their profession, you know, like, so it's kind of a different world, I think, than the world of historical memory or the world of, of the public. Um, so I think you're right. Wellington did have trust in them. I think he did trust them to hold their own and fight well. Um, but I think there's, that's the difference. Um, also Wellington was much more politically astute, right? Like he's not just a commander in the British army. Um, he's also very tapped into the politics, which I think you have less, um, say with the Prussians, for example, because they're different, completely different structure, king, you know, kind of um, monarchy, all of this. Um, so this, to me, all of these powers have very, what I would call typical behaviors, okay? Um, the way they talk to each other, the way they conceive of their policy, the way they conceive of their politics, the way they conceive of this war and what they're fighting this war for. Um, which is obviously throughout the whole Napoleonic Wars, right? This whole problem with the coalition warfare and everyone seeking their own interests and, and the historical competitions that exist there. And I think what happens here is for the British, um, or the, like you were talking about downplaying foreign forces, I, I don't want to say they always do it, <laughs> um, but it's... Um, to me, the way they're fighting this war with the coalition forces, with foreign forces, is a lot of the way, even with their own British troops, they have been fighting other continental wars. Right. So um, I think the British see it as a British victory. I don't think they really think about their, the, 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 I mean, they're aware of it. Like they're not, you know, ignorant of the fact that they recruit Germans and, and Dutch and Swiss and all of these things into their war. But I still think even with the coalition, um, because it's Wellington, um, you know, with command, that it is a British victory. And when they're, when you're talking about it, it's British and Prussia, you know, it's these, these two countries broadly from a broad perspective, um, you know, and the British win, and that's the way the narrative goes, right? They're not like, wait, hold on, let me tell you about all of these people who were fighting under the British army who were not British at all, right? So I think it comes with the historical memory, the, the way after conflict you have, I don't wanna say they're rewriting, but the, there's, you can't escape the political, right, of war. And so the framing of this, because for the British, even when I'm studying North German, Anglo-Hanoverian-Prussian relations. For the British, this is always a war between Britain and France. And, and it's these two superpowers, right? The British with their naval supremacy and control of the seas and the French with their army and, and continental forces. And this kind of dichotomy permeates everything. And so even at Waterloo, it's, it's, it's the perception of the way they've been fighting this war. You know, it's, it's Britain finally defeating their French nemesis, which to be fair had been going on for the whole century, right? And so I think a lot of those political things, a lot of those ways of 
framing the conflict, of thinking about the conflict, play into the way it's talked about afterward. Um, so the Prussians are the big one that's harder to downplay because they're, you know, their entire force in their own right. But I think that's what happens in this, is, is in the process of a lot of that, the minutia gets kind of pushed away. And that is who's actually fighting in this British army, right? The actual makeup of it. Yeah, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. There is that temptation, particularly when you're trying to write episodes like this into the history of yes. your own nation, to just go, they were British, let's focus on the British examples because we're creating this British narrative of the history of our nation. Absolutely. And this is, this goes into historical memory in general. I mean, if we think about it, so um, English, right, <laughs> is the dominant language uh, of British history. And of course, American too. So you have this large swatch of scholarship that's in English. And so people in English speaking nations are writing histories, the English, you can read those histories, right? So a lot of the German perspectives or the Dutch perspectives or whatever are written in German more so than they are in English. So then you get availability of scholarship, right? And who can read it? So if we're talking about British history, and of course you're going to, as a British historian, look at the angle from the British angle, right? That's what happens. But because of that, that means the more scholarship on it is in English. And so that, you know, the focus is on Wellington and the focus is on the British army and the focus is on some of these different things. Whereas it's harder to access um, a lot more of the continental accounts if they're not published in English too. So if we're talking about long-standing memory and how, you know, that familiar, familiarizes us with certain narratives, I think that contributes too. But I would say it's gotten so much better. The scholarship, the work that's been done on Prussia, the work that's been done on the King's German Legion, the work that's been done on all these troops, I think it's better than it's ever been. Um, and there's much more access and English to some of these things. So I think that tendency is kind of fading, if you will, even if it's still strong um, because of the work that's been printed in English and that can kind of change the understanding of these events, if you will. Do you think Wellington had any role to play in, in how it was remembered in the sense that when you look at the Waterloo Dispatch, one of the things that people sometimes pick up on is the fact that you've got this very lengthy letter to the British government reporting on his actions. And he's quite open about the importance of the Prussians, particularly at the closing stages, but it comes down to maybe a paragraph and a half at the, almost at the end of the letter. Do you think, because there are two ways of arguing that, aren't there? That he's deliberately paying lip service to the role of Blücher and the Prussians because he's got to do that and he's got to continue the campaign and continue to foster that working relationship. But then the flip side is that his role is to write to the British government about his actions and the forces under his command. What's, what's your sense of, of how that plays out? I think it's sometimes both because I'm really one of those people. People probably will hate me for that. But I'm one of those people that I'm not an all or nothing person and I don't think things work that way um, because I don't think in real time anything ever works that way. So in a sense, I think it's a little bit of both. I think Wellington's in tune with what his government wants to hear. And I think he's in tune with how he is 
representing himself for his own future. I mean, think about Wellington. He's, he's Irish, you know, so he already has, you know, these other components kind of working against him and his command and his success militarily is something that allowed him, you know, um, to move up and forward. So I think he's aware of those things, but I don't think that means that he doesn't understand the importance of Blucher and the Prussians, but that doesn't mean he's also not going to use those things to benefit him at home. So the Prussians would say, or from the Prussian perspective or whatever, would, yeah, it comes off as purposeful, right? They're suspicious of, of Wellington. And a lot Sorry, of the yeah. suspicion is the political, right? Like is what is he doing to benefit himself on this larger political scheme? Not necessarily the military, like yes, Blucher's worried that because he gets, Wellington gets held up at Katrapra, um, you know, and he doesn't come to reinforce him. So, you know, there's suspicion there of, is it purposeful? Are they doing it? So there is suspicion of that, but it's tied into the political components, if you will, that are infecting or kind of impacting those command. So I think it can be both because when I read, even when I read accounts of the Prussian, like even Prussian or British, when you're reading those, there's a recognition that Waterloo isn't the success it is without any of the parts, right? You know, like Absolutely. if Blucher yeah. and the Prussians don't show up when they do, um, if, if the King's German Legion doesn't hold the defensive of La Haison, um as well as they do for as long as they do. So I think on that level, there's a clear understanding. But then when you get the politics, that adds another component. And I, and I think it can be both. Yeah, I, I mean, think Wellington can be conscious of it being both. Blucher definitely had it right, I think, when he suggested that Waterloo should really be called the Battle of La Belle Alliance, just for that, that wonderful metaphor. I, and see, that's the politics, right? Where they don't go with, with, with that and they yeah. go with Waterloo and centering the narrative. That's what I was talking about with historical memory and centering the narrative, right? And the British do it amazingly. They are incredibly effective at it, you know, and this has been true. Like Waterloo's not their first, you know, um, experience with that. Um, but I do think on that military level though, they, 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 they recognize that. I mean, there's so many good stories of, even with the suspicion between Wellington and Luke, there's so many good stories of, of this kind of camaraderie they have. Um, like at one point when they're meeting right you know, before the battle during Waterloo, there's a story of Pluker bear hugging Wellington. Yeah, you know, like there there's, is, yeah. there's a respect there. <laughs> I'd, I'd love I mean, to like, see Wellington's face if that actually happened. I know. I like to think so. Um, but, you know, I, I, I always try to humanize these moments. Like some of the people I respect the most are some of the people I fight with the most. But the reason I respect them the most is because we can have those really tough conversations that need to be had. Um, to get the best out of whatever it is. So for, you can mistrust and be suspicious of intentions and, um, you know, all of those things and still respect the military. And, and I think that comes through a lot. It's just the political finagling, if you will, that um, recast it right the memory and and it's so quick to happen like it happens right you know right then it's not like this is a 
historical memory that's rewritten, you know, like 40 years after the Battle of Waterloo or anything yeah, like that's that. True. You know? That's true. It's something that is happening in real time, the way they think about it, the way they cast it. But, I mean, it's interesting what you say about how Britain, even by this point, has kind of previous in, in doing this sort of thing, because of course they've had, even in the short term, a lot of practice at that with the Peninsula War, where mm -hmm. inevitably they won't have gone to great lengths to emphasize that it's an Anglo-Portuguese army and the Spanish contingents that had deployed in the battle. So perhaps in some sense, it's just a continuation of what they're used to, to doing. Um, for me, in the, because uh, well, I'm reading, because I read a lot of diplomatic correspondence, right? So there's, you know, a lot of feelings being left out, put out there that maybe necessarily, you know, they're writing to the foreign minister, so they just tell them whatever they, they, they have and, and vice versa. And it's present there. The way Grenville writes, the way Hawkesbury writes, the way the envoys write is that this is Britain saving Europe. And, and there's good and bad to that. The British have to believe that. That's what's driving them. You know what I mean? That's, that's motivation. That's, that's a lot. But I think that, I think that that's how they see it themselves. Of course, the, the continent, that's where you get into conflict with the British because they don't, they see themselves as saving the British. Um, you know, when you, when you think of Prussians and, and all the rest of the, the German troops, um, but they see it that way, or they talk about it that way. Let's say that the language that they use is that. And I think it plays in what you're talking about, the Anglo, you know, um, emphasizing the British. Because if it's not troops, it's British money. This is true, right? yeah. You know, or, or subsidizing, you know. So I think that kind of goes into the British perspective. Well, it may not just be our troops. You know, it's, it's British money. The reason you're fielding your troops is still Britain. We pay for it sort of thing, so therefore they're kind of ours. <laughs> but, you know, wrong or right, that's not what I'm, I'm not really commenting on that. No, but no, I do no. think that is, um, you know, that's the way they see this. And that goes into that, it's a British versus French war. You know, um, I love this stuff. I love talking about these dynamics <laughs> of perceptions. That definitely uh, comes across. Uh, what's the perception of Waterloo out in the USA? I love this question. I love this question because it's really not. <laughs> um, but I want to explain it. It's really not a thing. Um, and when I say that, I'm. There may be, if you talk to other Americans, um, maybe they would have a different answer for you. But I'm trying to think of, you said popular perception, so like public perception. I'm trying to not think of the people who are non-historians who know me because that doesn't count, um, right? Or my friend groups who are also Napoleonic, uh, um, Napoleonicists or anything like that. I'm talking about your average American citizen and how they would perceive it. And if I walked to somebody and said, what does Waterloo mean to you? There's a few things that might happen. One, they might say ABBA, right? The ABBA song, Waterloo. That's oh, yeah. going to be Probably one. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. They might be like, are you talking about Waterloo, Iowa, which is a city in Iowa? It wasn't originally named Waterloo, but it becomes Waterloo. Or I'm in Texas, so they may say, are you talking about Waterloo Records? which is a record store in Austin, Texas. Um, but I don't think that they would automatically think of the Battle of Waterloo. Now, if I said the Battle of Waterloo, they would say, yeah, I've heard of it. 
they may they may not have heard of it, but if they had, they may have heard of it, but they wouldn't really know a lot. Um, Wellington, kind of to kind of expand here. If I said, do you know Wellington? They'd be like, do you mean beef Wellington, the food, right? That's it, yeah. That might be the first thing. And they may have heard of him, um, but I wouldn't expect it. Napoleon, they do. Um, and that's because of American history, right? This is the kind of larger legacy, if you will, of Napoleon, that it's wider than just Europe. And that's because in U.S. Um, history instruction, they are introduced to Napoleon. Um, also, Napoleon on popular television programs, right? They always throw in like a Napoleon character, like is identifiably, identifiably Napoleon. Um, so in American instruction, they would under, they would hear about Napoleon. They would hear about Haitian Revolution was huge, had huge ramifications for American slavery and the way America responded uh, to revolts of their enslaved. Um, and then, of course, Napoleon trying to recapture it. So that's kind of in the narrative. Um, then you have, of course, the the American French, right? The, well, the American competition with Britain and France, as far as commerce goes, you have the quasi-war um, between America and France. And then, of course, you have uh, the selling of the Louisiana territory to the Americans. So these are some of the ways that they are introduced to Napoleon in a, in a broad way. Um, and that's only if they're paying attention. So uh, Waterloo specifically, maybe they've heard of it, but it does not nearly have the same um, interest or um, impact, uh, symbolism, uh, um, as it does in Britain or in, in Europe uh, itself. Yeah, and America's pretty... massive. America's yeah. massive. Like talking about America's multiple countries in one thing, you know, so you go to different regions, you might find different people, you know, who, who know, but as a broad culture, I would say interesting i think in a way there's a similar situation here in the uk because it's not taught in schools at all you know you, you can quite easily go through oh, your really? secondary school yeah and it doesn't appear people i mean the last compulsory year of history education which for our lot is is 14 years old um is all effectively 20th century conflicts so world war one world war two cold war before that we kind of do the Tudors, the Stuarts, if you probably just bypass the Glorious Revolution even, um, and you just jump straight into... Really? Sorry, yeah. I'm like... I mean, you, you get the British Empire in there, and the controversies and the Empire in India particularly. Yeah. You might get a little bit of sort of the scramble for Africa at the tail end of the 19th century, but 19th century history just kind of gets written out apart from that. Um, yeah, and you just sort of jump in at sort of 1914. Well, in my classes, when I teach American history, because in at university, our university system's different. So all American students, because it's not as specialized, right? You, you go to university and, it, and it's still, it's broader. Um, so they all have American surveys. So if they have me, I give them way too much extra information about Europe because <laughs> I need... Honestly, I need them to know that America is like this on the, the large spectrum for, you know, pretty much the entirety until we get to the Second World War. Um, um, but I do bring in a lot more of that. 
uh, for context, right? The War of 1812 isn't happening in a bubble, you know, so I bring up Waterloo. Well, we don't need to talk about it in detail, but I do bring up that while the British are having to deal and wrap up this conflict with America, that they are simultaneously having to reorganize, you know, a new coalition to respond to Napoleon coming back. So I always try to drop those things in, um, but because we have discretion, you know, we can kind of include what we want. But generally speaking, no. There's an ignorance, if you will, of, well, we could argue about history and people not really paying attention to it a lot. Um, but that is going to want to be one of the things that kind of falls through. But I think it's an interesting question and I, and I really enjoy thinking about it. Now I'm going to ask people. Now it's going to be like man on the street interviews and I'm going to be like, hey. One final question because we have quite a few people who follow the Napoleon Assist online who have an interest in the War of 1812. And it's it's an interesting one because Britain always thinks of the USA and the UK having this really close special relationship. But in the process, just kind of neglects the fact that not only the Americans probably don't perceive it in quite the same way, but also that there that in the early days of the um, of US history, the relationship is incredibly fractious between the two nations, as the War of 1812 kind of demonstrates. How is the War of 1812 thought in the US? Oh, yeah, like, yeah, no, this is a, it's a good question. Um, because we think of that, like you said, the Anglo, you know, the American uh, British connection is really comes into its full in, in, the, in the 20th century. Um, and in America, a lot of scholarship and scholars themselves see the War of 1812 as a continuation of the American Revolution. In a lot of ways, the War of 1812 is deciding some of the things that were left open right with the american revolution so there's things uh with the treaty of paris in 1783 um that they make agreements right the british promise to leave all of the forts in the northwest territory the americans promise to provide the loyalists like give them back their property and their territory and all of those things um if they want to they also promise to pay back the money Right. So in case you were wondering if it was really about taxes. Okay. Um, they promised to pay back all that money. Um, and there's a lot of those things that they promise that they don't do. The British don't leave the forts, you know, in the Northwest Territory. Um, and so it's kind of an interesting period where you have the beginnings of American government, right? They have to figure themselves out. They have the Articles Confederation, which fails. They have then the establishment of the Constitution. So there's this period where the Americans are trying to figure out a, a working government. But in those times, a lot of the problems with Britain that was, were already happening were, keep, were continuing to happen. You know, So especially in the 1790s, you have the British seizing American merchant ships, you have the impressment of American sailors, you have all of these things, and these were things that were already going on. In the 1790s, America can't really do much about it. They signed the, the awful, what the Americans called the Jays Treaty, um, where they send John Jay to England and he basically gives exclusive trading rights to Britain, right? Kind of under duress, if you will. So they have no negotiating power. Um, they try to walk this fine line. They don't want to make France angry. They don't want to make the British angry. And then signing this exclusive trading rights with Britain, um, that starts the quasi-war. Um, with with France. And so all of these things are happening this whole period and they keep happening. 
and they start happening again in you know around 1800s 1812s and by this point america is in a much better position you know there's some stability if you will in their government you have had actual peaceful passing of governmental power from one party to the next right because you have washington and adams who are considered federalists because you don't have um, the party system isn't the same. And then you have um, that transition to power in 1800 to Jefferson, who's a Jeffersonian Republican. And then of course, um, Madison, who is president during the War of 1812. And so all of these problems with Britain, what America would say violating American rights, the British violating American rights have been happening. And so you have this kind of culmination in, in, in the War of 1812. And so that's why they, this is one of those historiographical arguments. Some people would disagree. You know, some people even argue that the American Civil War is a continuation of the disagreements that Americans had even in this revolutionary period. So it's dealing with Britain. And so the kind of way it's taught a lot is that, because the war changes nothing, right? The War of 1812, it, it reverts back to status quo. You know, like no territories gain, you know, there, there's no obvious benefit, if you will. Um, but the argument is that it, it made Britain finally recognize that America is a power in its own right. Maybe not the power, not the power that we're going to see in the 20th century or anything like that, but they are a sovereign nation, you know, who will protect, who will defend um, their territory. And, and, and so you have less conflict between the two. Um, after that. It doesn't mean they're always on the same page, but you don't have this same problem of impressment and, you know, attacking commerce and kind of this antagonistic, it almost feels antagonistically familial, um, right, relationship. And so at the end of it, you have less problems with that. So that's why you kind of see that extension. It's establishing those things that they thought that they are already established or had already agreed to. Hayley, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. Um, I hope so. Way. I hope everybody enjoys it. I'm sure they will. It's been a fantastic way to kick off the interviews. Um, I know people have learned a huge amount. So thank you so much for joining me for Waterloo Remember. And I do suggest that if anybody has a chance, specifically with the King's German Legion, because there's so much going on in that conflict of the defense of La Haisson. And so much more detail that we didn't get to get into, you know, all the dynamics, the nay setting the thatch on the, the barn on fire and the, the clamoring to put out the fire. There's so many small things that we have evidence for and we have, you know, detailed analysis for that I do suggest even for popular, I mean, Brendan Sims book is, is written for a popular audience, but The Longest Afternoon is, is specifically about that, where he takes it blow by blow and it gets really into the details. So I recommend that to anyone who wants to, to have kind of a play-by-play, -play, if you will, of the defense that we weren't able to necessarily get into in our you know, brief um, discussion of the event itself. That was the historian Haley Stewart discussing the role of German troops within Wellington's army at Waterloo. You can follow Haley on Twitter at Haley A. Stewart. If you have any questions or comments, Remember that you can get involved on Twitter using the hashtag WaterlooRemembered or in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net where you will find a dedicated room for Waterloo Remembered. 
Join me tomorrow for the second instalment in this triple bill of Forgotten Foreign Forces as I speak to Professor Alithia Laspra about Spain during the War of the Seventh Coalition. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been Waterloo Remembered from The Napoleonicist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.